Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Wednesday, March the 1st, 2023. As always on Keynote, we're in the business of trying to make sense of a, an incredibly complicated and confusing world. Um, we had a show earlier today with um, a Stanford University art historian, Alexander Nemirov. He has a new book out, The Forest, The Fable of America in the, nine, in the 1830s. There's something, as I suggested to Nemirov, defiantly eclectic about him. Uh, he's a man who wears many different hats. He's not just a historian and a fantasist of America in the 1830s, but he also uh, has written a wonderful book on a, on Helen uh, Frankenthaler, 1950s American artist, as well as a, a photographer, Lewis Hine. Uh, his book, Soulmaker, is another extremely nice book. Um, it seems as if these days, to make sense of the world, one needs to be eclectic. One needs to write both fiction and nonfiction to see the world in all its complexities. We need to be a filmmaker, a photographer, fiction writer, nonfiction writer. Uh, my guest today, Peter D. Kramer, will be best known to you as a writer on um, uh, Prozac Nation. He didn't write the book Prozac Nation, but he, he wrote a book called Listening to Prozac, uh, which was a huge bestseller, a landmark book about antidepressants and the remaking of the self. He's also written Ordinarily Well, The Case for Antidepressants, um, against depression, um, and he wrote a, a, a really interesting book on uh, Sigmund Freud, The Inventor of the Modern World. But like my previous guest, uh, Alexander Nemirov, he's not as narrow as some specialists. He's also a fiction writer, and he has a new book out, Death of the Great Man, a novel. And he's joining us from Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, it's his second novel. Uh, Peter, welcome. Uh, the book's out next month. Have you turned to fiction because the world is too complicated or perhaps too simple to make sense of it in non-fictional terms? I've always wanted to be a fiction writer. I always thought I would be a fiction writer. Uh, so... Join the crowd, Peter. Everyone wants to be a fiction writer. <laughs> And, uh, you know, not that I know which of my nonfiction books I would sacrifice to make room, but uh, when Donald Trump was elected, I was in the middle of a two book contract with Faro Strauss and was in New York about to see my editor. I was in a Barnes and Noble and I was uh, going up the escalator and I thought, no, you have to stop everything and write something related to the disaster that Donald Trump is going to be. And, and really at the time, I thought I would be joining a flood of such work. I thought it was incumbent on every creative person to pitch in and uh, do something that was uh, related to this regime we were gonna be under. I anticipated that it was gonna be bad news. And when I saw the editor that day, I first called my agent. It was a rainy day. I was under the overhang of that Union Square Barnes & Noble in the rain calling my agent. And he said, sure, go ahead. 
encouraging guy. And I went to the editor and said, I, you know, I, uh, I'm going to write this book. The editor parenthetically was horrified and uh, I did not end up with Forrest Strauss with this book. I'm, I'm still uh, under contract with them for, for a second book after Ordinarily Well. But uh, an ordinarily uh, well uh, is, uh, but you also you have written a, a novel, a spectacular happiness, which yeah. looks at the world rather differently. It's interesting, Peter. I have to be a psychiatrist when I talk to you. You were going up the escalator when it popped into your mind that you needed to write a novel about Donald Trump. Was he going up or down the elevator when he announced his presidency? Yeah, I don't know that. Uh, that was in his in Trump Tower. I'm not. Uh, you know, I'm not really a Trump scholar. This is more uh, impressionistic, I would say. It's. Uh, were uh, you? Uh, were you? Um, did did the Trump presidency only lasted four years? Although it may reappear in an odd way, a sort of second version of, of of the nightmare. Were you surprised with how little impact he made? I mean, were you surprised with? the fact that he wasn't as much of a disaster as some people feared, or do you think he was a bigger disaster? I think he was a bigger disaster. I think when he came in, there was a sense that uh, he actually held some liberal views. Um, uh, you know, there was an impression in the press that he would not turn out to be a right-wing ideologue. He turned out to be a populist in the negative sense of that word, didn't he? where he uh, took a series of ideological right-wing views and managed to ensconce in power a series of judges who uh, share these views. Who, yeah, you uh, didn't answer my question, Peter. I asked you whether or not he was a bigger disappointment. You, asked, you, you answered me in ideological terms. I mean, for all you know, I'm a right-winger myself. Um, the, the question is not whether he was right or left. The question was whether or not he was a good president. Uh, he disastrous was, I think he was a terrible president. I think he, he could conceivably have been a good president and been conservative. I mean, it's not those two things aren't incompatible, are they? Right. No, no. I, I think it was his uh, disruptiveness that was uh, problematic. The combination of uh, ideology and uh, lack of uh, attention to tradition, I think, was the uh, was the combination. I mean, in the fiction we are in the disastrous second term of an increasingly autocratic uh, buffoon. Yeah, uh, death so, of a great, de de this is your novel, Death, death of the Great yes, Man. Yes. Uh, and, you know, this is, of course, not straight up Donald Trump. Did you see the, the movie about the death of Stalin? Did it... No, no, I, no, I know that I should. I should yeah, not. you should have. That was pretty funny. I, I'm curious, you know, as I said, you, you're best known as um, uh, a psychoanalyst. Uh, you, you've written these books about uh, Prozac, uh, also about Freud. Is there something about um, Trump that conforms to a world uh that you've studied as a psychotherapist well i think trump was an interesting subject because you know psychiatrists are forbidden uh to diagnose uh people they have not actually interviewed and gotten permission from and there was lots of 
controversy in the psychiatry world related to some people from Yale and elsewhere who, uh, you know, wanted to diagnose Trump and uh, call him uh, paranoid. And, um, you know, I think without- There's nothing wrong with being paranoid though, Peter. I mean, FDR was paranoid, Churchill was paranoid, some great political, I mean, to, to, to borrow a phrase from, um, uh, from Silicon Valley, only the paranoid survive. Yeah. Um, right. I, I think paranoia is one of those interesting terms that has, a, you know, horrible clinical implications, but also is just widely used for uh, people who are, uh, you know, vigilant and focused on their enemies. Um, so, yes, I think in times of war, a certain amount of, of that can be can be useful in a leader. Let, um, let me rephrase the question on, on Trump. And perhaps more broadly on this rise of authoritarianism, it seems as if we've got two things going on simultaneously, or more than two, but two particularly in terms of this conversation and your expertise. On the one hand, we have the rise of seeming buffoons like Trump, quote unquote, great men who are, of course, anything but great. And on the other hand, we have the rise of Prozac Nation, of a, of a world in which people are more and more on uh antidepressants you wrote a book uh your last uh, one of your last books was the case for antidepressants is there a connection between the fact that we live in a world where people and particularly young people seem to be increasingly reliant on pills that make them more cheerful and the rise of these authoritarian buffoons i i don't know that that's the case. I mean, it seems such a world historical movement, you know, it's, it's going on in Hungary and, uh, you know, Brazil and Venezuela and the United States. I don't know that it's, we can, uh, you know, connect those two in that way. I do think in the States, the whole opioid crisis, de deaths of despair, the, uh, you know, stasis of uh, the lower working class, uh, is, is related to the rise of populism. I think that's, you know, that's not an original view. Um, antidepressants are kind of a complex story and I don't wanna stumble into that territory right now, uh, but I think that they are probably, you know, more simply helpful uh, medications for serious illness than they are something else. And there are, you know, lots of cultural tropes about what antidepressants are. So the, your book begins um, with a man called Henry Farber, a psychiatrist, an area that you know, of course, very well. Um, the great man was found dead in his office in Providence, Rhode Island. You're talking to me from Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, is there some wishful thinking here, Peter, in the book? Maybe a little bit. I mean, I do think that people who've had this wish are probably a good audience as uh, readers, and he... Uh, is talking to the security guard early in the book, uh, this Henry Farber psychiatrist is, and he says, you know, in my practice, so many patients had this wish or dream that the great man would disappear in a miasma, and not so much that he would be murdered in the way of public assassination, which I think has its own uh, enormous political downside, but that if he could just have been made to go away, that that was really everybody's uh, fantasy. So I think start, you know, that's where the book starts with that 
But uh, uh, I mean, I assume that you, you decided to write the book and you think, you know, you were called to write this book because your fictional alter ego, Henry Farber, as a psychiatrist, could make sense of a man like Trump, where yeah. political scientists or, novel, uh, or traditional novelists or economists can't make sense. What, what, what do you or Henry Farber, what, what can you see in a Trump that the rest of us can't? All right. So, you know, I think the public fantasy is this fantasy of diagnosis that one would say, oh, this is it's paranoid or sociopathic or uh, some kind of pathological narcissist, that there are all these labels and that it would somehow do us good to uh, have a psychiatrist place this label on a national leader. And I thought, but you know, the psychiatry I know is much more subtle and intimate and not interested in labels. I don't, you know, spend a lot of time or didn't, well, I'm not in practice anymore, but I was in practice for 40 years. And I, you know, it wasn't like I was focused every minute on my patient's uh, diagnosis. I was focused on their, uh, you know, day-to-day -day worries on the background for those worries about where they were stuck and how they could get unstuck. So I, yes, I thought I would write a book about what it would be like to have an intimate view of one of these figures. And um, this Henry Farber is a great idealistic, dedicated psychotherapist who is a kind of an existentialist, wants to sit beside his patients quietly and look out at the world as they do. And what is it like for him to have to put this method in the service of this really utterly horrible figure, uh, you know, to try to empathize with and... Uh, Can we empathize if we get into his head? Should we try to empathize? Well, that's... And also as Henry Farber's, uh, his doctors? Well, he talks about really oscillating back and forth between viewpoints, that you need the objective viewpoint. You need to, to some extent, see him and his actions as the world will. Uh, but I think you do, yes, need to spend a lot of time seeing himself as he does, you know, much put upon, uh, blamed for things for which he is blameless. So the psychiatrist really tries and it stretches him to inhabit the inner world of this, uh, you know, quite damaging. Did, did he have an inner world? I mean, his niece, who of course is in your business, uh, wrote a book suggesting that the problem with Trump was that his inner world was destroyed by his father and his upbringing. Yeah, well, I'm not trying to... Is it possible to live without an inner world as Trump seems to have done? I, I You know, I'm creating this buffoon, egotistic, narcissistic figure, so I'm not claiming to know what Trump's psyche is like. And I do think people who've known Trump claim that he changed over time and that maybe he was a more rounded figure uh, earlier in his life than he was by the time he took over leadership. But um, uh, the, you know, Henry Farber keeps struggling, he keeps almost finding uh, a fully rounded person within his uh, patient. Now, his, his patient, throws him in a jail cell. I mean, all sorts of things happen to poor Henry Farber, who is, you know, a real uh, uh, Pollyanna and sort of a Candide-like figure. He keeps being hopeful that his psychotherapy will 
will save the day. And he gets thrown into a small, you know, dark, unheated jail cell. And he thinks, well, I can continue doing the therapy from here. Uh, you know, that my response to my conditions will somehow make its way back to my patient and we will be continuing our, our communication in that way. So he's, he's utterly fanatically uh, dedicated to his art and, and trying to understand his patient, even through the patient's, uh, you know, most extreme acts. We've done a lot of shows, Peter, on the rise of authoritarian figures like... Uh... Donald Trump, uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, of course, many others, Putin, one with Ruth Ben-Giet's written a book about strongmen, a very successful book. Is there something male about this condition? Um, I mean, the, the anti-hero in your book is not an anti-heroine, very male. Mm, yes. No, I think in, uh, you know, the, if you're trying to reflect something about Trump, you have to reflect a certain amount of misogyny in the, in the fictional figure. If he were uh, really uh, tender and sensitive and kindly to women, uh, you know, we wouldn't, wouldn't recognize him. Uh, I do hope I create a strong female figure in the, the sort of the wife or consort of, uh, of the great man. Uh, but yes, I think masculinity is tied up in that, but it's not to say, I mean, I don't know about Indira Gandhi or, you know, there certainly have been, uh, or uh, that, Chef. Benazar in, uh, Benazar Bhutto in Pakistan, where there certainly are authoritarian women leaders in, in recent political history. Do you think, I mean, obviously this is fiction. It's not nonfiction. As I said, fiction and nonfiction seem to be very hard to separate these days. Do you offer in this book, Death of the Great Man, uh, 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 something about the Trump phenomenon that nonfiction people haven't picked up on? I, I hope so. I mean, it's obviously, I don't know anything that other people don't know. I think that's what was foolish about the whole idea of diagnosing Trump. Trump so obviously was who he was. Uh, you know, they're putting a label on it didn't, wouldn't change people's opinion of him. He was or made himself well known uh, at the level, you know, which we uh, know public figures. So I don't, I, I, I think I, I hope I expand the reader's type of imagining so that I put into question, what would it be to know such a figure? Uh, and, you know, clearly that goes well beyond uh, slapping a label on the trace we're already familiar with. Uh, you know, would you, care more about him if you knew about his childhood injuries? Uh, would you be more horrified uh, if you knew about, uh, you know, whatever the consistency is in the family of some of the traits we saw in public? So yes, I, I, I hope that the reader um, is, you know, that we do a little judo on the reader the way fiction writers do to kind of throw them into a situation where they can see things a little differently. I don't know that I, you know, that you can draw some conclusion from it that you would then slap on, on actual living, uh, you know, authoritarian leaders. Narcissists are, of course, capable of remarkable charm if they choose to manifest it. Trump, as much as anyone, um, w was your fictional character this great man? Was he also, when he felt like it, enormously charming? I. 
I don't know. I think he is uh, trying to respond to the therapist in the room and trying to make himself appealing. He kind of gets what the game of psychotherapy is uh, so that he, he uh, yeah, I think he's not without the ability to read the room or read the, read the person in the room with him. But he has trouble restraining himself, you know, his trouble not being uh, the person he is as well. Um, there, there is another interesting character in the book who goes by the name of Beelzebub. Uh, he is, you know, like some of Trump's less likable advisors. And he really works on the therapist. He's trying to evaluate and ass assess Henry Farber to see if he's appropriate to dragoon into the service of the great man. Uh, and I think uh, that interaction has, uh, you know, some of the markers you're talking about where the, the person is at once quite horrible and uh, quite adept at interacting with the person in front of him. Yeah, they're masters of that. Um, on Trump, we've done many, many shows, one with the uh, ABC White House correspondent, Jonathan Carl, who has a who had a new book out, Front Row at the Trump Show. What is the Trump Show, though, uh, uh, Peter? Um, Neil Postman wrote a book in 1985 called Amusing Ourselves to Death, Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business. Yes. I wonder whether, you know, at the time Postman was right, I wonder today whether we could talk about public discourse in the age of psychiatric disorder or in the age of the couch, um, rather than uh, the front row uh, on, on Trump, uh, we you, at least in your book, had the front couch on Trump. Yeah. Has show business been replaced by the couch, by psychoanalysis of one kind or another? Well, I, you know, I think part of Trump's appeal is his outrageousness, you know, when he's sort of sticking it to the libs or whatever, that he is willing to capture the national attention to do more and more outrageous things. And I think, yes, in the book, there is a you know, question of sort of how do you, how do, you do psychotherapy with, uh, or just interact in, in some uh, authentic, intimate way with someone who is you know, trying to suck all the air out of the room all the time. So yeah, I think that I, I think the, the, the showbiz analogy in the Postman book is, is relevant to our, to our understanding of Trump in public. And I, and I try to bring some of that sensibility into the interactions that we see. Finally, uh, Peter, you're predicting, I'm not sure you're predicting a Trump second term, but the great man had a second term. Yes. What happens if Trump gets this second term? Let's say he runs again or he is running, he beats, he wins the nomination, he beats Biden or Harris, whoever runs against him. Uh, then what? I, I think much worse. You know, I think, however, I think he probably has gotten a little more skilled at holding the reins of power. So that would be dangerous. Uh, I think he will have less tolerance for diversity of views in the administration. Uh, and I think the country would enter a period of disaster. So in the novel, the great man has stolen a second term. 
he was not actually elected. And uh, he, uh, the country has entered a depression to make the Great Depression uh, look like golden times. Uh, so that the country is, is it's really dystopian. Uh, and I think that is my view of what another Trump term would look like, that it would be dystopian and we'd be living in it. 